0: So as Jason explained, I'm a Presbyterian minister. And one of the things that means is I go to a lot of meetings. uh, And over the last few months, I've actually participated in several different formal discussions, meetings about a crisis in our church. And I don't just mean in RCA, PCA, I mean just the church, the Church of Jesus Christ in America. Um, In January... For example, one of these meetings, the church leaders from Washington and Oregon met in Seattle to acknowledge and address the problem that we are running out of pastors. Period. Full stop. Folks are not going to seminary like they used to. And that is both locally, and by locally I mean the Pacific Northwest, and nationally. So, for example, the, the organization I work with, Reform University Fellowship, Uh, As a college ministry, we put ordained people on campus. We don't really have the number, and if I can be a little bit candid, or the quality of candidates that we need to pastor people like we used to. But behind that problem is actually something maybe a little bit more significant, if not a lot more significant, and it's the fact that uh, folks aren't going to church anymore. Or at least they're not going like they used to. So we may actually not need as many pastors because the number and size of churches is shrinking. Now, if you're a religion that's about reaching people for Christ, as many people as possible, for as long as possible, that is a problem. People are not sticking together or sticking in Christ's church. I think even deeper than that problem, and it's not problems all the way down, but here's as far as I'm going to go, is one deeper. And it's this, that our time now is one in which Christian teachers, pastors, heck, all Christians are struggling to communicate our beliefs in a way that connects with our neighbors and sometimes even with our own consciences. Particularly on issues like race, gender, sexuality, marriage, class, and I would even add ethical integrity. Christians uh, lining up what you do with what you say you believe and having them kind of link up. And it's not just the culture that's pessimistic. It's not just people who don't go to church who are rolling their eyes, but it's Christians as well. It's the church that's feeling this this cynicism, this doubt, this even, this low-key despair about things. And so this Christian pessimism, at least here in America, is fed by changing circumstances culturally, things that we all feel, that we know, that we've experienced. So in the U.S., for example, there used to be this shared sense of cultural order. Folks kind of believed the same basic things. They kind of acted the same way. Now the ground has moved culturally underneath our feet, and we don't have, we're not all standing in the same place. So what I mean is, in other words, even if people didn't believe from the heart all the things that they said, there was still a formal set of beliefs that shaped, that were shaped by Christianity and shaped by the Christian faith that a majority shared. It's what some people call cultural Christianity. And that's not really around as much anymore. And I just want to acknowledge that some people rightly called that Christian, uh, cultural Christianity was not all it was cracked up to be either. All right? So now Christians, us, we're trying to figure out what can we say to each other, to ourselves, to the world at large? What should we have said? What should we do? And what are our resources? For bearing witness to Jesus, because that's what it's about, right? We're wanting to bear witness to Jesus because we claim to be in vital union with Him. We follow Him. We're in mission for Christ, with Christ. All right, I told you it's not problems all the way down. Here's where I'm gonna go today. One good tool in our kit, not the only one, but one that I think reaches across culture and time, comes from the Apostles' Creed. Something that we confess every week. Something that after this sermon. And in particular, it is that part of the creed that deals with creation. The confession and explanation from Scripture that God the Father Almighty is maker of heaven and earth has ethical and missional implications for us. So that's what we're going to look at this evening. We're going to see how this fits with our own experience, how this helps bind us together. Right. That's where we're going in the next few minutes. Mm. This is distracting. It's kind of a big thought. All right. Here's the first thing. There's a couple of key things going on when we say that God is maker. All right. That's, that's this is all we're talking about this evening. And the first is this. It doesn't seem like a big deal, but it is actually kind of a big deal. When we say that God is maker, we're saying he is the source of all things that He doesn't have any partners, that there is nothing that is equal to Him in existence or experience, that God is the source of all things. He made all things that exist, whether it's something that is visible, things we can see, taste, touch, smell, or invisible, whether it is heaven, the stuff that we can only see through a telescope, or earth, whether it is angels, quarks, Demons, gluons, whatever those things are, before God created, there was only God and no one and nothing else. Full stop. Period. Doesn't seem like a big deal because maybe we're used to believing that because we confess it every week. But the prevailing take on reality at the time that the creed was written, all right, around the second century, was that the universe had always just existed. And they believed in gods, but the gods didn't make it. But the gods, well, they, they just kind of intervened in things at different times for their own pleasure because the gods were the, the biggest, the richest, the most elite players on the stage of reality. But they were a part of something bigger than themselves as well. So when you get to the 70s, when I was growing up, in the 80s, there was a show on PBS Right? Portlanders, good PBS watchers, maybe. Um, there was a guy named Carl Sagan and this show called The Cosmos. And you remember what he said? If you watched it, you know what he said because it was his tagline. It was his bumper sticker. It was his T-shirt. The Cosmos is all that is, or ever was, or ever will be. Right? That was like his one spiritual law or whatever. And uh, it kind of landed in the midst of cultural Christianity, like this guy's saying it. But, pre Socratic philosopher like Thales, you know, Aristotle philosophers from thousands of years ago would have heard him say that and been like, yeah, that's right. So what? That, that, that's not a big deal. But you see, it is a big deal because there are moral implications to that position. And frankly, there are moral uh, implications that no one really wants. Because you see, that position. The cosmos is all that is, was, or ever will be. That makes the world and the universe all that is. It just is as it is. Now, what does that mean? It means that whatever happens in the world, therefore, is, see this, scare quotes, natural, essential, just the way things are. One thing is actually not better than the other. You're like, well, so what what does that mean? Well, it means that we would have, therefore, no grounds for judging one thing to be good or or bad, just depending on what it is. We wouldn't really be able to distinguish between or call something good or evil because things just are. Death, for example, is just a part of the way things are. The strong, conquering and using the weak, is just the way things are. There would be no vantage point or perspective outside of the cosmos, outside of everything um, that, that is made that could change or spiritually assess what we have. There would be nothing to tell us why we should care one way or another about things like justice or fairness or compassion or mercy or equity. That's why even... Trenchant atheists like Richard Dawkins or John Gray, Patton Oswald, right? You, you, you choose your flavor of atheists. They will frankly acknowledge this. And in my opinion, they do kind of their own sleight of hand to get around this because most do not want a dog-eat-dog world. It's too grim. It's too brutal to countenance. It's not the way things should be. And it's not. Because with the Hebrew Bible and these beautiful passages that were read earlier, and then again, in the New Testament scriptures, we have a completely different witness, a completely different view of God and reality that's presented for us to be anchored. You see, one that may, a view that makes the world meaningful now, a world that makes the world shot through with purpose, It gives the world a sense of right and wrong. And it's right and wrong that is anchored outside of everything that is created. It is anchored in the Creator who has spoken ultimately in Christ. You see, God is almighty when we say that God is the maker of heaven and earth. God is almighty. He was completely free, completely satisfied in himself as Father, Son, and Spirit. The divine person's shared love, hear that word, love eternally and completely, according to John 17. Yet in love, and not out of a sense of incompletion, not out of a sense of neediness, not out of a sense of loneliness, not out of a sense of, I wonder what will happen if I do thisness." But because the cup of God's love runneth over, as the psalm says, God created from nothing everything. And he did so, remember how he created in love? He did so to share his love so that we in all of the creation would know him and receive life as a gift. See, life is not just natural, though it is natural. It's not just organic, though it is organic, but it is also, in a real sense, because scripture and Jesus bear witness to it, divine. God has made himself known as good in Israel, in the scriptures and in Jesus. So, what have we said so far? Though the world was created in love by a creator who is outside of and not a part of everything else, that God is in control of it, and he is the source of love and goodness and not captive to the world. What else? What else do we believe when we say that God is the maker of heaven and earth? Here's the second thing. And this is important. Because it's actually the easier thing to lose here. God created everything good. God created everything good. In the passage that we heard read from Genesis 1, we are told repeatedly that in creating all that exists, God created it to me'od, very good. That God's intent and accomplishment in creating was to display His glory, His wisdom, His joy, His love, And the Bible highlights, hear me on this, the Bible highlights that the physical world is not inherently evil and not irredeemable. All right? The world and its cultural products, the stuff that we do, don't need to be escaped. The world of the flesh and created matter is actually good. It's created good. A good God created a good world. The 4th century Cappadocian uh, teacher, Gregory of Nyssa, put it like this. If a man in broad daylight freely chooses to shut his eyes, it's not the sun's fault when he fails to see. Now what does he mean? Likewise, ignoring God's gift of the material world and the fruits of culture as blessings, not seeing that that's from God is a way of hiding, is is a form of escapism. Now I, I can hear, I can feel just because they're in me. The objections. Of course, for sure, creation and the products of, of human culture are, are stained. They've been affected by sin. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. It's telling us what we know, that the world is broken, but it's not utterly broken. It's not unfixable. It's not worth going after. See, the creation of the world has been corrupted. It has been distorted. But that is not what it is by its nature, by its design. That is not what it is. Frankly, that's not who you are inherently. God created us and he created the world good and It's headed back that way by redemption through Jesus Christ. It is a sick world that needs healing. But it is not an evil world that needs destruction or escaping from. And that is the difference between Christianity and other views. This is good to remember. It's good for us to kind of circle back on this because, honestly, Christians, maybe first among people, at least in our culture, very easily slip into errors and misguided teaching of rejecting the world. Um, that's, that's almost a whole series uh, for another time. But listen to how Paul talks about this. Do y'all remember in the 80s, satanic panic? <laughs> Those of you who are around in the 80s, right? There was this great fear that if you listen to the right kind of music, if you played Dungeons and Dragons, it was gonna kind of lure you, it was gonna bring you onto the dark side that Ozzy Osbourne and all that. I never got the Dungeons and Dragons thing either because everyone loves Lord of the Rings. Dungeons and Dragons is just kind of playing Lord of the Rings. And like in the early aughts, everyone, every pastor was giving Lord of the Rings. Service. I don't know. That's, that's, that's me working my stuff out up here. But <laughs> satanic panic is real in the Bible. And it comes from, well, verse Timothy 4. Listen to this. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times... Some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. There it is. No ambiguity. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Who, alright, what is it? What are they doing? Who forbid marriage? And require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth? That's Paul's satanic panic? Yes, it is. For everything, he goes on, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. There's a Bible for you right there. Paul calls this forbidden of good earthly things satanic, the doctrine of demons. And so when I was in college, pretty close to the 80s, um, so much of what counted for Christian spirituality, spirituality had to do with forbidding good things. You don't drink beer, you, don't, uh, you can't smoke or chew. Now, I know those things are bad for you, but they're not necessarily sinful. Don't, don't at me, don't DM do me. I'm just saying that most Christians have done that stuff. Anyway, you, you know why it could be bad for you, You but don't drink, don't chew, don't go with the girls who do all that stuff. And in my case, I studied philosophy kind of got scrutinized for that because it was being captive, you're going to be held captive to philosophy. And see, that kind of weighing your spirituality based on what you did or didn't do with how you eat or how you, what you did with your body, um, it was like that. The first century, according to Paul, it's like that now. Now see, it would be worth our time to consider God's goodness and what he's made, both in nature and through uh, humankind and culture. Uh, It would be an antidote. It is an antidote. It is, according to Paul, to a kind of legalism that would suggest that we are righteous, that we are more spiritual, that we are closer to God because of what we do or don't eat, how we do or don't take care of our bodies. And that's a good conversation later on about God for for us afterwards, about how God has created things, what he has done in making them good, how we get to share in that. But I do want to mention one thing. And it's this, that just as in the first century, the forbidding of marriage was the issue of the day for Paul, at least the one he highlighted to the church there in 2 Timothy 4. There can also be the opposite problem, but for the same reasons, which is to denigrate the creational goodness of people who are single. You see, marriage is great if you're called to it, but not everyone is called to it. Okay, um, we can make a list of some of the greatest Christians who were never called to it. Start with Jesus, all right, and then even even Paul, as best as we could tell, was never married either. If he was, he wasn't married by the time we caught up to him in the New Testament. Now, I just want to say, I don't even know if there's single people here or not. So, get the word out: if they're not, you are not incomplete. You're not unfaithful. You are not failing to fill the earth if you don't get married as a Christian. You are whole as you are. You are complete right now. You are good. You are tov ode as God made you. And you are vital to the health and successful mission of Christ's body. There is nothing wrong with you. You are not a puzzle with a big piece missing. You are not a yin without a yang. However you want to fill that out. You are a whole image bearer and are needed and valued, not just as a foil to the lives of married people, but by being leaders, by being teachers, by being models of grace in the Holy Spirit. Showing the power of the Holy Spirit in our midst. Uh, congregations need to make room and value the single Christians among us. So those of us with spouses and children should be willing to be grafted into the lives of single saints to learn from them, to enjoy them, to be a family with them in some ways. In fact, the New Testament doesn't, while it doesn't do away with the nuclear family, it doesn't make a big deal about it either, and it sure doesn't privilege or prioritize it. At least Jesus didn't. Read Mark 3 on your own afterwards, where he talks about his true church or his true family being Those who are gathered among him. Lastly, Maker of Heaven and Earth, the last thing we want to think about this evening as we talk about God being the Maker of Heaven and Earth is this that by affirming the inherent and intentional goodness of everything that God has made, cosmos, world, people, and knowing that because God is good and has revealed Himself as the source of goodness. We have now the leverage to look at injustice, to look at evil, to look at brokenness and the impact of sin now and imagine and work for change. To imagine and work for things being better here and now, even if just a little bit. Because as Christians, we know that right now things are not the way they're supposed to be. We live in a good world with good people, but they are also image bearers that have been stained by the ruin of sin and rebellion against God, just like us. But we also know that God entered into the world in Jesus to justify the world, to make it right, and to make the people in it right. Another way of putting it is we are not locked into seeing the world as it is now, laden with injustice with the wreckage of disease, the darkness of anxiety, with environmental ruin, ruin, and just giving up. Oh, well, that's just the way it is. Um, I was talking with one of my children recently, and she was asking me about, whenever my wife and I were first starting to have kids, if, if, if we ever thought about or were worried about bringing children into a world that was so messed up and terrible. And she was asking obviously because that was one of her concerns too. Uh, And I avoided doing what, uh, you know, typically pastors do with their children. They they just give them a sermon as an answer. So I just said no. I didn't. But since we're in a sermon, I'll I'll, I'll fill out that answer. Um, The reason I told her no is because to be passive in the presence of evil and to not strive to see thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, would be a kind of escapism would be a kind of fatalism that Scripture doesn't teach and I think it doesn't even allow. So Christians who are married and have children, having children is actually an act of faith. It is an act of hope. It is pressing into the reality of a broken world that we want to be the hands and feet of God serving in the world. That we want to see Psalm 8 enacted. What does Psalm 8 say? Out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. That children are a part of the kingdom. And they're a part of God's witness to goodness and holiness and righteousness. And they're a part of that. And that's something that we get to share in. Likewise, we're about to finish up here. Just because Jesus is coming back We don't say, well, it's all going to burn anyway. It's all going to burn anyway. What's the point of caring? I'm just going to kind of lean into doing what I want to do. Friends, that is, going back to 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, that's false teaching. That is a form of the doctrine of demons. This is our Father's world, as the hymn says. In a real sense, we should be at home in the world. We protest against the disagreeable parts of life. Peace is. Justice, care for the weak, for the oppressed, the voiceless are the work of Christians. And so we support and give ourselves to what is noble, to what is enduring and hopeful. Because in doing that, we're able to get little glimpses of heaven, eternity in those moments whenever God's grace is at work and what is wrong is being set right. The followers of Jesus believe that in him we have encountered the enabling source of creation, of truth, of justice, of goodness. We have come to know the one through whom all things were made. Looking into the face of Jesus, we see the blueprint of reality and have come to see God's good plan, even if in part, but nonetheless, really, God's good plan for the whole of creation. Won't you look to him? Won't you keep looking to him? as the source of life. Let's pray.